this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lust and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, Look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, beloved, seeing that ye look for such things, be diligent that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot and blameless. And account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking of them of these things, in which are some things hard to understood, which they which are unlearned and unstable rest, as they also do the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, Seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Based on this and many other passages of God's word, 
We continue our instruction in Lord's Day 19. We looked at questions 50 and 51, but let me read them over anyhow. Why is it added, and he sits at the right hand of God? Answer, because Christ is ascended into heaven for this end, that he might appear as the head of his church, by whom the Father governs all things. Question 51. What profit is this glory of Christ our head unto us? Answer first. That by his Holy Spirit he pours out heavenly graces upon his members. And then that by his power he defends and preserves us against all enemies. Question 52. What comfort is it to thee that Christ shall come again to judge the quick and the dead? Answer. That in all my sorrows and persecutions, with uplifted head, I look for the very same person who before offered himself for my sake to the tribunal of God and has removed all curse from me to come as judge from heaven, who shall cast all his and my enemies into everlasting condemnation, but shall translate me with his chosen ones to himself into heavenly joys and glory. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved, this morning we look at the last degree of Christ's exaltation. We have looked at his resurrection, we have looked at his ascension into heaven, we have looked at his sitting at the right hand of the Father, and now his coming again to judge. A bride waits for her bridegroom. How often we have witnessed that during World War I, World War II, or Vietnam War, or even the, war, the wars in the Persian Gulf. A young couple gets married, and the bridegroom is shipped out to war. Who at the time of his departure, he solemnly promises to his bride, I'm going to return for you. What a fitting emblem that is of the position and the attitude in which the church of Jesus Christ finds herself from the time of Christ's ascension into heaven until his return again on the clouds of heaven. Jesus promised to return and to take his bride to himself. And so it is with ecstasy that she is waiting, she's watching, She's praying for Christ's return. That, beloved, is the last prayer in the Bible. The Spirit and the bride say, come. The bride is the church. The church now has to be patient. The church now must be steadfast in her love, as we read there in 2 Peter 3. Thirdly, she must resist. She must resist with all of her strength the powers of evil that would wean her away from her beloved. 
that call and that promise is ours today. Watching and praying for the coming of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. And yes, our encouragement is his promise. Lo, I come quickly. At times in the church's history, the church has looked back far more than it has looked forward. She has stressed the first coming of Jesus Christ, and she has spoken comparatively little about his predicted second coming. Yes, of course, there is the significance of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And very important is the atoning work and sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven, his session at the right hand of God. And that is the burden of the preaching of the gospel, isn't it? Christ and him crucified. But the church needs also this forward look to sustain her in the current pilgrimage. The riches that we already possess in the bridegroom and the untold blessings he will bestow at his return. You see, it is proper contemplation of those things that will greatly increase in her life the joy of salvation. The joy of salvation even as she lives in this veil of tears. So, beloved, it is not only in times of distress and threat of persecution that the church must long and pray for deliverance, but also in times of prosperity with the threat of materialism and worldliness. Our eyes must be on that blessed hope, praying Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You've heard that prayer from your pastor many times in the congregational prayer. I want to ask this question. Is it your personal prayer and is it your family prayer also around the table? Are you eagerly and expectantly looking for and praying for Christ to come? What a blessed answer when that day finally comes. So it is for our comfort that we speak this morning about Christ's second coming. And notice from me, from your outlines, first of all, the manner of his coming. Third, second of all, the judgment of his coming. And then thirdly, the purpose of his coming. How necessary is that coming Then will be the final glory. Then, and until then, Christ has to complete his full work of redemption. The elect have to be born and have to be saved, and therefore the Lord holds back his wrath on this sinful world until that church is completely born and saved, and then he will come. Belgic Confession, Article 37. Maybe you want to read it around the table this afternoon. But it speaks about that coming of Christ desirous for the church, but also terrible 
terrible for the wicked. So let's begin with the manner of his coming. How will Jesus Christ come? Now brides, when they are waiting for their husbands to come back from the wars, they are excited, but also they're concerned, aren't they? What will his physical condition be? What will be his mental state? What will be his general disposition? Will it be a mutilated body? Will it be a broken spirit? Would they still have the same love and devotion for them as when they left? Will their coming back be a joy or a disappointment? Well, for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, we don't have to be disturbed with those kind of uncertainties. For Christ will not come back with a disfigured form. And he will certainly not come back unfaithful to his trough or his love, growing old. He who lived a life of humiliation on earth was killed, will return in resplendent glory as a mighty king, as a victor over, his, over sin and death unshaken in his love, faithful to all of his promises. How will he come? Will he come in person? Or will he merely come in a manifestation of his power? Will he merely come in the spirit, or will he come in the body and soul in a visible form? And the answer to those questions... We find in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, when, Jesus, when the angels speak to Jesus' disciples at his ascension, we read there, This Jesus, who was received up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have beheld him going into heaven. So notice, first of all, in your outline, it is a personal and a visible coming that teaches us, first of all, that the Lord will return in person. It's a personal coming. Body and soul, he ascended into heaven, so he will return. I want to stress that a minute because there are liberals in the church who don't believe that Jesus really did arise from the grave, literally, but they interpret the story of the resurrection as only that the moral influence of Jesus or the remembrance of Jesus remained in the apostles' minds. So it's only symbolically that he arose. They did not believe in a physical resurrection or ascension and therefore do not believe in a physical coming back again. What a sad hope that would be. It's not merely a moral influence that is left with us. But the following passages of God's word tell us, predict to us, a physical coming of Jesus Christ. Whereas in Acts 3, verses 19 and following, there Peter is able to talk about the seasons of refreshings because of the presence of the Lord. Philippians 3, verse 20 
We wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, shall be manifest. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven. So first of all, it is a physical coming. A personal coming, it is also a physical coming. There's a difference between that. Yes, Christ will be here, present, but how a physical coming in the body. Again, that comes in the statement of the angels to the disciples. This Jesus shall so come in like manner as ye have beheld him going up to glory. So why emphasize now that it is a physical coming? Because Jesus Christ promised to come and has come many times. Jesus came physically in the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Jesus came also personally Every time the word of God is opened up, it's Christ speaking. And it's Christ who is also personally there when we have the sacraments. And Christ also comes personally for each of his saints at the time of death to take them home to glory. So he comes personally in those different ways, but he is going to come now physically in his resurrection body. That body that Thomas wanted to see with his eyes and touch with his hands. And blessed are those who believe in Christ who have not seen him physically. Again, I emphasize that because there are those who do believe that Christ is not going to come personally and physically. Yes, they say Jesus is spiritually present. That was fulfilled at Pentecost, and that's really the end of the story. So Jesus' coming is personal, it is physical, and thirdly, it is visible. There are those who speak about the invisible coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that is the dispensationalist. They are looking forward to Jesus coming and suddenly rapturing up his church to him in heaven, and no one sees that. And those who are left behind wonder, what in the world happened to those other people that used to be in the world? It's a secret rapture. But... Jesus is coming visibly. Not only to the eye of faith, but all will see him, both the righteous who are looking for him, but also the wicked who are going to cry out for the mountains to fall on them. Jehovah Witnesses speak about an invisible return of Christ. Russell in 1914 said Christ had already returned, but he remains hidden because of the prevailing unbelief. But the Bible, again, leaves us no doubt about the visibility of the Lord's coming 
Jesus testified, we read it in Matthew 24, verse 30. Then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Or again, Revelation 1, verse 7, Behold, he cometh with the clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they that pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. So the coming of Jesus Christ is going to be, first of all, personal, physical, and visible. Notice with me, second of all, the coming of the Lord Jesus is going to be sudden and final. In other words, the coming of the Lord is not gradual as the church somehow prepares a kingdom for him, as the post-millennials want to teach. But there's going to be signs of his coming. But not signs so that you and I can predict the hour or the day, or as some have tried, the month and the year. Wrong. But we know he is coming. We read in Matthew 24, as in the days of Noah there was eating and drinking for the wicked, Christ's coming is going to come like a thief in the night just as the floodwaters came upon the wicked in Noah's day. But for believers, they are watching. They are expectant. We read in Matthew 24, verse 44, therefore be ye also ready for such an hour as ye think not, the Son of Man cometh. We know he's coming. We know he's coming quickly, but not exactly the hour. And how is he going to come? He's going to come with the angels and with the saints. There's going to be a great train following him coming down because he's a mighty king. And notice with me the finality. He's coming to this earth to raise the dead back to life in order that all of them may appear before him in judgment. And he will come to judge all according to their works, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, whether it be good or evil. And he will come to make all things new, to redeem this creation from corruption, that will be the last act of history, the new heavens and the new earth. What a day that will be. So his coming will be sudden and final. And thirdly, the manner of his coming, it will be glorious. Over and over and over, Scripture indicates that the future coming of Jesus is glorious. Jesus said, Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father. Again, Matthew 24, verse 30, They shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. What is that glory? It's first of all the glory of that person that's coming, the Lord Jesus Christ, the victor over sin and Satan and death coming in his resurrected body. What a glory that will be. How different it's going to be from his first coming. 
What does the Bible say about his first coming? Isaiah 53, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and we shall see him. There's no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him, and he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now compare that to his coming again in glory that we find in the book of Revelation. I'm thinking of, first of all, Revelation chapter 1, where we read these verses, 12 through 18. And I turned to see the voice that spake unto me. This is John in vision. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, from Daniel 7, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in the strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not. I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. Oh, beloved, that's glory. Glory that was not in his first coming. There's going to be a glory in the way he comes, in the manner of his appearance. Think a moment in his first coming. What did he look like? A helpless little baby laying in a manger with cattle around him. That's his audience. But when he comes again, every eye will behold him in his glory and his power, bringing judgment to the wicked, bringing salvation and deliverance and life to his own. Thirdly, not only is there the glory of his person, there's not only the glory in the manner of his appearance, but thirdly, there is the glory of the saints. You see, the glory of Christ Jesus is heightened by the glory of his people. Colossians 3, verses 3 and 4, When Christ, who is your life, shall be manifest, then shall ye also with him be manifested in glory. 1 John 3, verse 22 and 3, we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed. The mortal will put on immortality, the corruptible will put on incorruption, the physical will be made spiritual. Oh, beloved, that's the comfort of the church in the manner of his coming. That is what's going to enable us to continue the good fight here. 
to deal with the disappointments and trials of this life. The manner of Christ coming again. But we have to hasten on, don't we? Let's notice second of all then, the judgment of his coming. The idea of that judgment. The judgment that Christ brings, and that is the central item, isn't it, that the catechism instructor brings before us. He is coming to judge the living and the dead. That judgment is the wonder work of the triune God in Christ Jesus, whereby God reveals all the works of his rational, moral creatures. All their works. All of our deeds will be exposed before the judgment seat of Christ Jesus in the light of God's law. Notice, we're not going to be judged by popular opinion, what others thought of us. That might seem so important to you at times. What do others think about me? What does Christ see? What does Christ think of us as he compares us according to his law? And there will be a reward of grace for God's people according to their works. The number of those works, the circumstances under which they were done, the time and the talents that were given to us, how long we served him. Notice The comfort of Christ's coming is the judgment. Don't be afraid of it. The comfort, because our works are going to be brought forth. That is the good works that God himself has prepared for us to walk in. And God will be glorified in those works that he enabled you and me to do. But while there is that reward by grace of the works that the saints do, There is a severe judgment on the works of the wicked. For they saw God's power and God's deity in creation, yet they denied him. And when the gospel was brought unto them, they rejected him. Yes, there will be different degrees of glory in heaven, and there will be also degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus warns about that, doesn't he? You and I who have had that rich upbringing of the church, reformed doctrines and everything else, you've been nourished. Much more is expected of you and of me than of perhaps like the thief on the cross who believed in Jesus at the last moment. Or the wicked. What about the wicked? Those in Jesus' day, in Capernaum and Bethsaida, Jesus warns him, it will be more tolerable for you than for Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you where all those works were done. Reward, but also punishment. That judgment will be public. Not just individualistically what God thinks of each one of us so that we'll then be convinced of God's justice. But rather, 
the righteousness of God worked in his people is going to be made manifest before the whole world. And also, the wickedness of the world and their deserving God's judgment will also be made manifest to all. Christ and his cause will be justified. It was a good cause. And the lives of God's people who were ridiculed here on earth, laughed at. Think of a moment of Noah. When he obeyed God and for 120 years was there preparing the ark. How the world laughed at him. God's saints will be vindicated. Yes, it's all about God, isn't it? That's what the judgment day is all about. God. God in all of his glory and saving his church. God in all of his righteousness, punishing the wicked. Notice with me that judgment will be final. With that, I mean history will be terminated by it. Because there the ethical fruit of the moral creature will be ripe. The world will be ripe for judgment because of their rejection of Christ, their hatred of Christ, their rebellion against God. But also the faith, the repentance, and the good works of God's people will also be ripe for reward. And so there will be an everlasting separation. A separation like on the farm. When the threshing, mean, uh, when the threshing vehicle comes, the wheat and the chaff are shaken. And the chaff is blown away and the wheat is gathered in the garnery. So God's saints are gathered unto him in the new heavens and the new earth while the wicked are damned to hell. Everyone will be raised from the grave. Not just the righteous, but also the wicked. So that body and soul, that's the way God created us, body and soul, we will enjoy him in heaven. Or for those who oppose Christ and his cause, body and soul, everlastingly, they will feel his wrath. Christ is the judge. Christ as the visible representative of the unseen spirit of God in such a way that all of his moral, rational creatures will recognize him. He is revealing the God of heaven and they will receive then from God through Christ Jesus their judgment or their approval, his approval, and his blessing. What a day that will be. The revelation of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Of all his moral, rational creatures. So you see, it's not only people, the righteous and the wicked, but also of angels. Angels and even all the demons will be judged according to their works and will be rewarded, rewarded by grace. Not earned, but God graciously 
rewards us for that very work that he enables you and me to do. What a day. What a day that is. And notice, Jesus warns us that judgment must begin with a household of faith. How will you stand in that day? Righteous, believing in Jesus Christ as the Savior and Lord of your life, that his death was the death of your sin, the punishment that you deserved so that you may live. Yes, that judgment took place at the cross, didn't it? It was accomplished there by Jesus. The world judged him, and they rejected him. Crucify him. The world's judge says, go at it. Go ahead. I wash my hands of it. But he was guilty. How will you stand? Christ Jesus as the high priest and the head of his people. (laughs) Their works worked by God in them. God says, well done. What a statement that will be. Laughed at by the people of the world. But God is going to say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. All creatures, all creatures, humans and angels, the wicked and the righteous, judged according to their works. Works that are done including the inward thoughts, the desires, the purposes, the age, the talents, the light of revelation. Again, as I said, it will be more severe for Capernaum and Bethsaida than for Tyre and Sodom. To those who more is given, more is required. I mean, let's go through those a moment. Judged according to our works, outward deeds, inward thoughts, desires, purposes, age, talents, Let me use one illustration. Jesus had his disciples looking at those who were putting money in the collection box at the temple. The rich man came with, dumped as much money in there. And then there was a poor widow who came and put her two little mites in. A couple pennies. Which is greater. What was the thought behind it? For the rich man, it was, may everyone see how generous I am, how much I'm giving to the church. Be careful, because that's not only in Jesus' day, it can happen today. Look, I give my budget. Look how much extra I give to the schools for the attention of others. Whereas the widow with her two might, in her mind, she gave all that she had. Probably the very bread that she was going to eat the next day. The purpose of both is different. The one is for popular acclaim. Look at what a righteous man I am. And for the other is love for the kingdom. Love for her God. Given according to the talents. 
God made us all different. Some can do much more than others can. God will judge us accordingly. And God will judge us in the light of revelation. And let me emphasize that again. What a responsibility upon us to those who much is given and much has been given to us in God's grace. Much more will be required of us in that day. On that day, probably, God's saints will realize how much the Lord has done in forgiving them all their sins. They must wonder, how in the world can I stand here and when the judge is going to read what I did wrong, Christ says, no, 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 no. No, that's forgiven. That's gone. I paid for that. How can God call us innocent? How can God say, you fed me, you gave water to me, you know from the Bible what the answer was, as you did it unto the least of these my saints. Christ is coming to judge all moral creatures. Second Corinthians chapter 10, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, whether we have done good or evil. And notice that word appear there in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 is not merely okay, there we're going to sit in front of God, but rather it means we're going to be exposed. The thoughts, the motives, the purpose, everything behind our works is going to be exposed. And may then the Lord say of you and of me, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice with me thirdly then, as we hasten on, the purpose of his coming of the second coming. The purpose, a divine purpose. His coming again is not just a chance happening. Oh, look what happened. But rather it is directed to a special end, a special and important purpose. The salvation of the church? Yes. The judgment of the wicked? Yes. But especially this, the theodicy. If you've got your outline in front of you, you see that word there, the theodicy of God. What does that mean? It means the justification of God in the consciences of all of his moral, rational creatures. The revelation of his righteousness. Sin must be punished. Those unbelievers are cast away but also his mercy. How in the world is a Noah, is an Abram, and everyone able to get up in heaven? That's what Satan once asked. How can Moses get up there? And the answer is, because they were in Christ Jesus. God is absolutely right in what he does in the saving of his elect church, but also in his damnation of the wicked. God is God. You'll notice that Lord's Day 19, question and answer 52, centers the purpose there on the judgment. The very same person who before offered himself for my sake and the tribunal of God 
and has removed all curse from me. That's the judge. We know today in human courts that lawyers and those who they're representing are always nervous and careful about who's the judge. Is he going to be favorable to my cause or is he going to be very antagonistic to it? Well, look at that, folks. Who is the judge who's coming? Is he favorable for us? He who gave us to Christ Jesus, he who has redeemed us from our sins, the judge is a favorable judge who loves us and is going to save us. Bring us from the trials and the difficulties, the temptations and the sin and the death of this world to everlasting life. So you say, why this final, and that's the important word, why this final judgment? Because in one sense, God always judges us and executes a righteous judgment. Notice, unlike some churches that want to teach about a common grace that God has for all people in this life and then suddenly wrath when they die, no. All of his life he is wrathful for the wicked. He loves only his saints. And so there is always in this world that judgment of God on all moral creatures. Good, pleasant, wonderful, Awful, rebellious, sinful. Love for his church, always wrath for the wicked. And that's important to know because not always can it be seen, can it? Job could not understand why he had to suffer like he did. And of course, those miserable friends accused him of being a terrible sinner. Asaph couldn't understand why the wicked are prospering and he has to suffer. We don't understand those things. But Asaph did when he went into the temple of God. You and I do when the word of God is opened. God puts the wicked on slippery slope, but always in his wrath. And he puts his righteous that we completely climb up with him in the glories of heaven. God not only judges us all of our life, but immediately when a person dies, they come before the judge of the world. Oh, how will it be for you? How for me? Will he say, well done? Or will he say, depart from me? But now, also, there is that final judgment, and that's where I come back again. It is the theodicy. That is, the glory of God is revealed. He is righteous. He is also merciful. How wonderful he is. When Christ comes, there will be no more Esau's to worry Jacob. There's no more Doug betraying or David. There's no more Ravshekah coming against King Hezekiah. There's no Judas betrayal. There's no more Papist bragging about their works. There's no more Arminian saying, what I did it's all about what God has done. Oh, yes, read the Belgic Confession, Article 37. 
we read there, I'm going to use one phrase, and therefore the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful for the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and the elect. Full deliverance. We shall be perfected. Now we are in sorrows. We will receive the fruit of our labors. We will finally and fully be vindicated. And we will possess such glory as never entered into the heart of man. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. There's a beautiful hymn that I want to end with the words on. It's called Day of Judgment, Day of Wonders. Day of judgment, day of wonders. Hark, the trumpet's awful sound. Louder than a thousand thunders shakes the vast creation round. How the summons will the sinner's heart confound. See the judge, our nature wearing, clothed in majesty divine. You who long for his appearing, then shall say, this God is mine. Gracious Savior, own me in that day as thine. At his call the dead awaken, rise to life from earth and sea. All the powers of nature shaken by his looks prepare to flee. Careless sinner, what will then become of thee? But to those who have confessed, loved and served the Lord below, he will say, Come near, ye blessed. See the kingdom I bestow. You forever shall my love and glory know. Amen. O oh, Father in heaven, we thank thee for this wonderful article of the Apostles' Creed. Jesus is coming again. Personally, physically, in glory to take us and to reward us with him. And so our prayer is, as the final prayer in the Bible, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.